0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we work and learn, and pay respect to the First Nations peoples and their elders past, present, and future. We're recording on Gadigal land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.
1: G'day and thanks for checking out another season of Rewind. I'm your host, Steve Bell. This time around, we're travelling back to the year 1990 and the release of the debut album by a hitherto unknown Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander singer-songwriter, one who was about to triumph over adversity as he embarked on a 30-plus year career entertaining and schooling generations of Australian music fans. The artist is the much-loved Archie Roach, the record is the classic charcoal line, and this is the story.
2: Albert and Ajiva not so much the things he saw, but what he felt inside, and how he loved the Fender's rain. The only thing The
1: his land would never Today Archie Roach is a giant of the Australian music scene. He's toured the world spreading his uplifting and thought-provoking truth, along the way sharing stages with Bob Dylan, Patti Smith, Billy Bragg, Suzanne Vega and countless more big names. He's been inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame, He's a member of the Order of Australia for his lifetime contribution to Indigenous arts and culture. In 2020, he was the Victorian state recipient of the Australian of the Year Award. He's won Arias. He's won a deadly award for lifetime contribution to healing the stolen generations. The list goes on. Archie is a musician, an activist, a healer, a massive and much-loved figure in the Australian cultural landscape. But 30 years ago, This road that Archie has travelled with such strength, humility and dignity seemed a long, long way off. In fact, so high are the hurdles he's faced along the journey that in some ways it's incredible he even made it at all. Archibald William Roach was born in Marupna near Shepparton, in January 1956. His mum Nellie, a Gunditjmara woman from southwestern Victoria and his dad Archie, a Bunjilung man from the northern rivers of New South Wales. At a very young age, he and his family relocated to Framlingham Aboriginal Mission near Warrnambool, down where his mum had been born. But sadly, and from a broader perspective shamefully, Archie never knew any of this until he was a lot older. Never knew his blood family, his own connection to country, where he fit in in the world. At the age of two, far before he had any agency in his future, Archie, along with his sisters, was forcibly taken from his family by Australian government agencies and placed in an orphanage. An orphanage. Despite having two perfectly functional parents who loved him dearly. But this wasn't about them. Anyone with even an ounce of empathy or compassion knows that this was an horrendously misguided initiative removing generations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their biological families and cultures But it wasn't until reading Archie's phenomenal 2019 autobiography Tell Me Why that I began to even vaguely fathom the magnitude of pain and suffering experienced by both the children and the parents affected by the Stolen Generations and how the effects of this callous displacement is still reverberating down the line today into future generations. Of course, young Archie wasn't aware of any of this not privy to that most important of information. Separated from his sisters, Archie was placed in a couple of foster homes early, at least one of which left him traumatised by the mistreatment he experienced, until he was eventually fostered by the Coxes, a family of Scottish immigrants living in Melbourne. They say ignorance is bliss, and the next decade or so was pretty uneventful in Archie's life, a relatively typical Australian 60s upbringing. The Coxes showed a lot of love to Archie and treated him as a member of their family and in return he loved them back. Even better, they were a musical family. His foster sister Mary taught Archie the basics of guitar and keyboards. His foster dad Alex bought Archie his first guitar and each week they'd sing with gusto in church on Sundays. Music was always around and Archie was always drawn to it and also very adept at it from the outset. But one otherwise normal day, when Archie was 15 and a student at Lilydale High School, a letter arrived which would completely throw the youngster's world off its axis. Sitting in his high school English class, a message came over the PA, could Archibald William Roach come to the office please? Now Archie was going by Archie Cox at this point, but instinctively knew that it was him being summoned, and when he went and received the brief letter, It was from his birth sister Myrtle telling him that his mum Nellie had passed away the week before but also informing him in the process that he in fact had four sisters and two brothers. Despite the unconditional love he'd received from the Coxes immediately Archie knew that he didn't belong there anymore that this was a charade not his proper family. So he up and left went searching for his sister Myrtle in the pre-internet days all he had was an address in Sydney as well as trying to find the rest of his family that he'd only just discovered he had. More importantly, Archie's quest was to find himself, where he fit in, where he belonged. For the next 15 years, Archie's life was a transient one, a life, sadly, as with so many other victims of the stolen generations, defined by displacement, which manifested in homelessness and alcoholism. For a while in his nomadic quest, he didn't belong anywhere, his life a blur of systemic racism, police harassment, stints in the lockup, and a slow cycle of neglect which pointed irrevocably towards oblivion. It wasn't all bad, of course. Although Archie never got to meet his parents, he gradually one by one reunited with most of his brothers and sisters and started piecing together his own background and origins. There were tons of friends and a strong sense of community, and at one juncture Following the toss of a coin, he washed up in Adelaide, where he would meet young Nurrengeri woman Ruby Hunter, his future wife and soulmate. But the years of drinking took its toll both mentally and physically, and we came perilously close to losing Archie a couple of times, until his love for Ruby, and her boundless love for him, and the fact that they'd started a family together, was enough for Archie to break the cycle and beat the bottle, embracing sobriety to ensure that he had a future with this family that he'd fought so hard to find and foster. But one thing that had always been there for Archie in good times and bad was music. That love of the form had stayed with him on the road and through his travels. Whether in the shape of jukebox and campfire sing-alongs, or strumming guitars with his mates in the park, Archie learnt early that if you haven't got two coins to rub together, if you know how to sing, and know a few good tunes, then you've always got entertainment in hand, and for Archie, music proved a crutch throughout his entire life.
3: Yeah, yeah, Bob, since way back, it's uh, been a blessing. Your music, uh, through all things, you know, being, you know, being removed and, and going to different foster families, there's always been a one, this one thing in my life that's been, uh, I think that it's really, but it's helped in a way to to keep, yeah, uh, help, help to, to, I suppose to deal with whatever it was uh, that was going on. And music was, music was there, and uh, I just embraced it. Eh?
1: A pivotal moment in Young Archie's musical journey, one he tells so eloquently in his book, "Tell Me Why," was inadvertently being introduced to U.S. country pioneer Hank Williams in church of all places. This didn't just instill in him a lifelong love of country music but it made him realise that he wanted to play guitar and sing.
3: Now, I started playing keyboard first, believe it or not. And I uh, was in church one time, this, this, uh, this uh, little Pentecostal church that I started going to uh, when I was going to high school. And uh, this woman got up and, and uh, got a verse from the Bible and sang it to a uh, Hank Williams song, You're Cheating Heart. And... Um, I know, mean, just looking at her, listening to her, and uh, the, the conviction of the sincerity that she had in in in, in her singing, just uh, just blew me away. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do: to play guitar and uh, you know, sing a song. But well, that's what I did. I Hank Williams tune. Uh, she said, "That's what she said." And so "Hank Williams." Because I asked her after the the meeting that day. I said, ah, what you're saying? What you're saying before in, in, in the service? It was a, it was beautiful. And she said, "Yeah, it's a passage from the Bible." But I sang it to a Hank Williams tune. I said, "Hank Williams, uh, who's that?" And she said, "You haven't heard of Hank Williams." I said, "No." She said, "Oh well, that's Hank, it was Hank Williams' tune called The Cheating Heart.' If you have, if you can get a hold of Hank Williams, uh, I suggest you you have a listen to his music, and like I did not long after it." Yeah.
1: And soon you were drawn to lots of that sort of sad country like Charlie Pride and Merle Haggard and Woody Guthrie, yeah. even though I guess that's folk, but you, you enjoyed those artists?
3: Well Woody Guthrie, yeah, yes yeah, so but he had that sort of country country way of, of singing and, and playing. And uh like you know uh, you know, like uh, what was the one about the refugee, you know? Uh oh, so my wife so long, Rosalita. Very, very country song, really. When well, you listen to that, Adios, Mess Amigo, Jose and Maria. You, you, run, you, you, you won't have a name when you ride the big airplane. All <laughs> <laughs> they call you a big refugee. And uh, I just thought he was great a songwriter and the uh, social commentary. Uh, but of course, you listen to the, the, the songs of Mel Hague and Charlie Pride and, and people like that. And Hank Williams, especially, had this plaintive. Plenty of way of singing, and his songs always dealt with heartache or, or something like that. So, yeah, it drew me in for some reason. I thought it was great music to listen to.
1: In in those years on the streets before you started your career, being able to play and sing, though, was still really important, wasn't it?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think on the street, you know, if, if uh, I had my guitar whenever I could, you know, if I didn't hock it. If it wasn't in hock, you know, you, 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 it just became another uh, companion or, or something else to keep you, I don't know, sane, I suppose, was one of a better word, I think. Uh, just to keep you grounded or just to keep you you're right, you know. And If you could pick up a guitar and play a tune, uh, no matter what was going on, you know, you might be homeless, you, you might be drunk, but you know, you can sing a song. And, and, and that, that helped a lot.
1: Yeah. Archie had always been a dab hand at playing and interpreting other people's songs, but there was an unintended consequence of his sobriety when the drinking stopped. Suddenly his own songs were pouring out of him at a rate of knots.
3: Well, that's what, not long after that, really. You
1: know, I started writing
3: songs about, you know, our uh, first couple of songs were basically country songs, getting drunk. You know, falling in love and getting drunk, falling out of love and getting drunk again. And, uh, and, uh, but it wasn't until my uncle, Uncle Banjo Clark, from uh, where I was taken from as, as a child uh, in, in southwest Victoria, um, came up to me and said, oh, I heard I was writing songs. And, and asked me to write, you know, he said, what did you write a song about when you was taken away? And, and uh, I said, I don't remember much about that. I was only about two. Three, he said, Yeah, but I do, so we sat down and listened to him, told the yarn about it. And that's when I wrote Took the Children Away and And that was the beginning of writing a lot of songs then about my own songs about you know, it was come up to around uh nine ninety eight, the bicentennial, and I started to write a lot of songs and so Yeah, uh, protesting I think about uh Things that have happened in my life and in my people's lives
1: yeah. you'd always loved words and poetry yeah. so i guess it's natural that these amazing songs like you just had such an incredible way with words from the outset
3: oh look i've always loved uh, i don't know what it was i just loved words so english was you know not so much a theory but but English going in there, um, writing poetry or essays uh was something i loved to do and uh i i just uh love to be able to 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 do something with words to to try and uh, say something uh you know uh, a little deeper than than, than uh what 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 you might read in in uh, normal sort of sentence or written prose uh to explore, explore what words actually meant and uh, how words can i don't know transform on a page if, if uh if used correctly yeah
1: and use them correctly archie did soon he was performing regularly and showcasing more and more originals whether playing solo or with a band featuring ruby as we'll later find out, a massive talent in her own right and other musical mates, playing folk clubs and country festivals, anywhere open to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander musos at the tail end of the 80s. Eventually, in 1987, Archie was asked to record some of his originals by his older cousin Jim Berg, a Gunditjmara elder, to accompany an exhibition of artefacts detailing the history of Aboriginal people in Victoria. He and Ruby, having settled in Melbourne after spending years flitting between Victoria and Ruby's traditional home in the Coorong region of South Australia, he recorded the songs at Fitzroy Community Radio Station 3CR, and these recordings became the Koori Tape, Archie's first, albeit pretty rough, recordings.
3: Cousin of mine, Jim, asked me to. He was um. He was getting a what? It, well, he was setting up a a group or in the, within the Melbourne Museum back in the day, uh part of the Quirried Heritage, Query Heritage, Aboriginal Heritage, uh, Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Trust. And uh being in the museum he had a lot of, you know, old, old uh, photographs and artifacts and and just information about uh Victoria and uh its Aboriginal people and uh uh prior to settlement and after settlement. And I said, Oh, okay. He said, that sounds good, Jim. He said, well I want you to to write a song you know, about about just so we can play while you while you while you while people are looking at this exhibition. And I said, I've got a I've got a couple of songs, Jim. and mum was took the children away. But others others as well like uh uh bicentennial blues uh, no celebration uh, uh and songs like that uh, and uh, so we we um yeah so we recorded and he said, okay uh, paid for a recording to go and get them recorded, and in the end that became the query tape and uh and actually a lot of the Another uh, a couple of the songs from there uh, is what Paul Kelly listened to uh, before we did Charcoal Lane the album, and he took a couple a couple tracks off there that we recorded on in, in Charcoal Lane eventually.
1: Was it strange hearing yourself like recording for the first time and then hearing your own voice and song?
3: Yeah, we we I I never really did like it at all. <laughs> I just said, "No, nah, that's is that me?" Yes, it is. I oh, know. I just thought it was it sounded strange. You know, you think you've got, you know, you, you hear yourself in your own head, like you know, like when we're talking now, even now, and uh, and uh, it, it's completely different when you hear it played back to what you're hearing in, in your head. And uh, the when I actually heard, what it was like you know, singing outside of my own head, I thought, well, that's strange. But, uh, <laughs> You get used to that over
1: here. So. <laughs> As Archie mentioned, the Koori tape featured the first basic version of Took the Children Away, which was no less moving despite its raw recording.
2: This story's right, this story's true I would not tell lies to you, like the promises they did not keep And how they fenced us in like sheep said to us come take care of him. set us up on mission lane told us to read, to write and pray then they took the children away took the children away the children away snatched from the rest took them away. Welcome in the, the holy state. Said you got to understand. We'll give to them what you can't give. Teach them how to really live. Teach them how to live their...
1: The Currie type took its name from the track Curry Curry. A version of which is included on the creation box set encompassing Archie's first four albums. That song finding Archie accompanied by both Ruby and Gun Eye artist Wayne Thorpe on Didgeridoo. <laughs>
2: Brand new day is dawning And the gray people rise There's healthy little children With happy laughing eyes Hunters at the ready They know how it feels To be chasing kangaroo Or catching lots of eels. Now it's hard so hard to live You just took so much from us Yet we had so much more to give And great Don't you go away Written in the land so many things you have to say And curry, curry, don't you ever die There's so much for us to learn together, you and
1: I Archie referenced earlier the Bicentennial celebrations of 1988, marking 200 years of white settlement in Australia, which drew a lot of Indigenous protesters to Sydney to make a stand on their own behalf, and it was during this time, at a protest gathering at La Perouse, when Archie sang a rendition of Took the Children Away, which not only calmed the factional divides threatening to derail this important show of dissent, but helped place Archie on the musical map. Following the La Perouse performance, Archie was invited to play a set on ABC Radio National Program Music Daily, which, in conjunction with him having become a frequent guest on 3CR, in turn earned him an invitation to travel to Sydney to appear on the ABC TV show Blackout, a fledgling program telling First Nations stories and promoting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander music. His performance on Blackout of Took the Children Away would prove another sliding doors moment in Archie's life.
3: So I was working in Fitzroy at uh, the hostel, George White Hostel, uh, where a lot of my mates, my old drinking mates would stay overnight. Yeah. But anyway, they'd, uh, you know, uh, they'd heard me they were singing songs around, you know, on community radio, here in uh, Melbourne, uh, Fitzroy. and uh, So they got me up to Sydney. Uh, I said, we, we wanted to sing that song you're we singing down there at the, you sang on, on, on community radio. And I said, oh, okay. Which one exactly? I said, about oh, the, the children being taken. I said, I, so I, I end up in Sydney doing a back out. And uh, I thought that was all okay and everything, but unbeknownst to me, uh, uh, Stephen Connolly, the, uh, the late, the great Steve Connolly, Guitars for the Messengers and co producer of Charcoal Lane, uh, along with Paul, Paul Kelly, uh, called us on, on Blackout and asked, told Paul, to, you know, rang up Paul and, and said, you know, check out this guy on, on, uh, on TV. And, and that's how that all came about, you know, how, uh, yeah, and uh, I got to know or got introduced to, to Paul Kelly.
1: Paul Kelly, a man who needs little introduction in these parts, a giant of the Australian music scene, who would soon play a pivotal part in Archie's musical career, not just in these early days, but as his friend and contemporary over the ensuing decades. Paul recalls being introduced to Archie by another friend, his guitarist in The Messenger, Steve Connolly, who, as Archie just explained, had been blown away by the rendition of Took the Children Away he'd seen on Blackout.
4: Yeah, I remember very well um, Steve, Steve Connolly coming coming to me and saying, I've seen this singer uh, Archie Roach. on it's on a show called Blackout, uh, TV show, and um, he said, we should, you know, we should get him to play with us. At, at that time, we were about to do a concert at the um, Melbourne, oh, what was it called, Melbourne Concert Hall. It's now called Hamer Hall. Anyway, so the first time that we'd... Ever played at a venue like that? This is, um, must have been 90, 1990, I think. And um, so we, had, we th- you know, it was a special occasion for us. And we thought maybe we should try and get Archie to come and, come and do the opening, opening s- set. So we tracked him down. Um, but sorry, you know, just to re- rewind a little bit. The song that um, Steve saw uh, Archie playing was um, They Took the Children Away. So, uh, um, yeah, that's what really started it all off, hearing that song. Then we got in touch with Archie, and he agreed to do the show. Um, And that's how it all started.
1: Was that a risk inviting an unknown singer-songwriter to open such an important show?
4: Oh, I didn't think of it like that. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, we we knew that that i think we had the show was selling you know we thought we i thought we must have been confident the show was going to sell so um uh it wasn't like we had to get a uh the support act to help sell tickets we just thought we knew who was good then we just it was, uh so thought it's it's, it's gonna be it'll be good and and it was it was um
1: Amazing. These days, Gerard Schielecki is tour director at Frontier Touring. In non-pandemic times, responsible for bringing your favourite international bands down under. But back then, he was Paul's booking agent at Premier Artist and he too vividly recalls being dragged by Paul into Archie's orbit. Before long, he'd be working very closely with Archie as his booking agent as well.
0: I, I guess one of the one of the, one of the bigger acts that I was working with for, and had worked with for some time was Paul Kelly, and. Uh, and The Messengers and um, I'd worked with Paul since I guess around when Post came out and then right on through to um, I think the comedy record. But during that time, uh, it was so exciting, so much fun. Uh, They were easily one one of the best rock and roll bands that I think I've ever seen. They really were the real deal. The whole thing swung beautifully with a great rhythm section. The material, Paul's songs uh, were on another level, particularly to what else was going on around in the scene at that time. And um, and happily, uh, uh, Stevie Stevie heard Archie, or saw Archie, I think, on television. I can't recall if it was the radio or the television. But anyway, he's heard Archie sing that song and, um, and freaked everyone out. <laughs> and so happily, uh, they wanted to... Um, have Archie come and play with him at the Melbourne Concert Hall. And uh, I guess, uh, well, from certainly where me, where, well, myself and I guess a great bunch of other people, that's where we first encountered what Archie was doing.
1: That would have been a pretty big, important show at Home Hall. Like, was it, is it normal to have someone that no one's ever heard of opening it?
0: Um, it can be, it can be, but if my memory's not if my memory is correct, um, I think that was Paul's first concert appearance as a headliner from memory. Um, The messengers were always doing, we were doing pub runs, doing large pub, you know, you go on the road for five or six weeks around the country performing in pubs. And I think, I think that concert hall date was the very first sort of formal concert appearance by him. I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. And then, yeah, and I think, as I, as we all know, Stevie heard him, Paul heard it, and, and they were both so enthusiastic about it, it was a complete no-brainer for them to include him on the bill.
1: So Archie is all of a sudden dragged by virtual strangers from his usual gigs in tiny folk clubs and coffee houses to the relatively lofty heights of the Melbourne Concert Hall opening for Paul Kelly and the Messengers... And as he quickly found out, this is a different experience altogether on numerous levels for a musician.
3: It wasn't Hamer Hall and it was just the Melbourne Concert Hall before they actually called it Hamer Hall. It wasn't, wasn't Hamer Hall until later, until after that. But so uh, it was all strange and, and weird to me too. Because uh, going out, we went out on the stage there, you know, do a sound check, got there at some ridiculous time and I'm you know, waiting around, waiting around. I said, gee, I, don't, I don't have you got to wait around here even before you do anything? He <laughs> said, oh, that's just the way it is. I said, okay. I had to get used to that too through the years, but the more, you know, a lot of this, what we do is, is waiting. And, uh, so it's about, you know, maybe an hour on stage or a bit longer and yeah, you, you've been there for about six hours or something. But yeah, so. Um, Went out on stage to do a sound check and everything and it was empty you know, nobody was there but I could see it was a big it was a big auditorium and uh, it didn't really hit me until later when I actually went out with the full full crowd it was there going to catch Paul uh, and the messengers.
1: and backstage that night Archie would briefly meet his soon-to-be lifelong friend Paul Kelly for the first time in slightly inauspicious circumstances.
3: I didn't even know who Paul Cully was, you know, um, I'm not sure if I'd heard the name, but uh, I was in the band, in the uh, green room, making a cup of tea, and trying to you know, find a few bickies, you know, having a cup of tea, and this lad, this little bloke, popped his head round the corner, and come in, you know, sort of, well, it didn't come right, didn't come all the way into the green room, just standing there. All dressed in black, you know, curly hair. And uh, he said, Oh, you must be Archer. I said, Yeah. He said, uh, How'd you go the sound check? He said, I said, No, it was all right. sounded, sounded, sounded good. He said, Yeah. He said, Well, uh, I might uh, see you later on. I said, OK, no worries. And, and he walks away. And, and I thought, because he was you know, dressed in black, all black, black shirt, black jeans, you know. And uh, you can see he had his nose broken, so I thought, I must be security, you know. You know, because he, he might have got to do a bit of a, yeah, might have zigged when he should have zagged, <laughs> you know, and got it in the nose, you know, from a patron somewhere. And I said, oh, that's security. He said, well, security, or one of the bouncers here. Because uh, he looked like he had to work a little scrapper at the time. And uh, it wasn't until later on that, that night after I'd done the set, after I'd done my songs, and I got off stage. And later on, I, before I left, I called, a, I, I, called a, I called Paul Kelly the Messengers. I was singing a couple of songs, and I'm looking and said, oh, That's that little bloke I thought was a bouncer. <laughs> I said, No, that's Paul Kelly and he started singing these songs you know like uh, to adore and uh you know uh, uh other songs uh breadman and i and said so is, that paul, is that paul kelly that's his music i said yeah he said i know these songs and people look at me going oh yeah <laughs> it's like you know who's this, who is this guy you know <laughs> i said well i don't know these songs you know because nearly." Back in the day, Paul Kelly's music nearly every song, or every second or third song on radio, most radio stations in Melbourne, anyway—was Paul Kelly. A Paul Kelly song, and so just you grew up with Paul Kelly songs. If you didn't, you know, if you didn't know who the guy was, you know, you certainly knew who the songs were uh, his songs. And that was like me—I knew his songs, but didn't know him—and I realised, oh, that's that's Paul Kelly. We didn't get to meet until later on, you know, about a week or so after that.
1: Paul also recalls this first backstage interaction with Archie. He thought
4: I was the <laughs> bouncer. <laughs> 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 I know. Um, I remember just going into say say hello to him before um he went on. I thought I introduced myself, but uh he might have missed that. I would have I would have said a oh, hi and Paul. You know, good luck. Hope it goes well. And um but um he obviously didn't hear me say my name or else I forgot to say my name or, and uh, so he just sort of nodded and nodded and then off he went to do his show. And then, like I said, we didn't get to see him afterwards. So we had, you know, a very brief interaction on that night. It was just, hello, good luck. Um, We we ended up following up later.
1: Archie was only allocated a 20-minute opening slot that night but 20 minutes was all he needed to stun the crowd into silence and leave an indelible mark on all those lucky enough to be in attendance. In fact, he stunned the crowd so much that for a moment he thought he'd completely bombed.
3: Gosh, so, so I don't know, I just had my guitar, came out and saw all these people, I was I was, a, I was a little nervous, I'll have to tell you. You know, and, uh, and I sang, um, I think it was... Beautiful child, first. Uh, and then <laughs> I just sang it and finished singing and uh, gave it a nod, or not a bow or anything, just a night. Silence, crickets. <laughs> Couldn't hear it, yeah. So I said, Oh, well, I've got one more song to go. I hope you like this one. You now it's being a little sarcastic. Said, I've got one more, that's I hope you like this one, you know. It's about children being taken away from their families. And I sung took the children away and uh, and after I sung that I was still silence for a long time and I, I thought, Oh well, <laughs> I won't be doing this again, it looks like. And I, and I'm about to walk off stage and, and it was quite surreal, really. Uh, you hear this applause and, Someone started clapping somewhere, and somebody else, and and it, it just built up on wave upon wave of of uh, this applause, and was quite amazing until I don't know I was almost, uh, if you can imagine, a wave, a tidal wave coming down on somebody, you know, it just just swamped me, and that's that's the best way to explain it, I think, and I, I walk, you know, I. Held my guitar in the air, and I said, Well, they did like it. And I walked off, yeah. <laughs> that was it.
1: Must have been a great feeling, though.
3: It was. I mean, when they, when it was strange how it happened, you know, like just sort of like, built, you know, the applause, like I said, I would know, just just uh, wave upon wave, and it just bang, it just it poured down uh, over me, and it, uh, it, it felt good. No, know, it felt good because, I don't know, like I said, you don't, you, don't, you don't really know what people are going to think about your songs when they hear them. And, and so, so, so I think that was justification for me, you know. So, but it was a great feeling, yeah.
1: Everyone's memories differ slightly about how many songs Archie played before it took the children away that night and what they were. That's the passing of time for you. But everyone is on the same page about the visceral response Archie sparked from the crowd with just his guitar and impossibly soulful voice. Here's Paul.
4: We only had a 20-minute set for him. And if I remember right, he just did two songs, long songs. Manana, uh, which is a long one. And then he did They Took the Children Away. He finished with it. And he finished the song and there was dead silence and archie thought that he just bombed he just sort of started to walk off but it was just that the silence was just the audience sort of gathering themselves after hearing this song um you know that was stunned and then as archie walked off the applause started to build and just got bigger and bigger and bigger it was a, it was amazing i, I got chills up the back of my neck i was watching from the side of stage and um uh yeah it got got an incredible reaction the writer martin flanagan um was there that night too and i know there's he wrote a beautiful piece about it uh about what happened that night and i think it was maybe published in the age he used to write for the age at that time
1: Paul actually quoted a section of Martin Flanagan's review in his sterling 2010 autobiography, How to Make Gravy, on page 376. It went like this. When he finished his performance, there was no sound in that vast auditorium. No sound at all. He thought he had failed. He started to walk from the stage and the applause began running after him. This man who had done something magical, raising the darkness of the past, telling it in truth, but with a largeness that excluded no one. And the applause was building and building like the crest of a wave, but when the wave broke and the applause which was supposed to sweep him up crashed to an empty stage, he was gone. Sisters Vicar and Linda Bull are these days also institutions of the Australian music scene in their own right, recently racking up their first national number one album after a long and fruitful career, but back then they were just setting out on their voyage, best known as the vibrant backing singers for Joe Camilleri's band, The Black Sorrows. They would in time become staples of the Paul Kelly concert experience as trusted members of his live band. But 30 years ago, when they were asked by Paul to contribute backing vocals to some songs on Archie's Chuck O'Lane album, that was their first time working together. Here's their memories of seeing Archie supporting Paul that night, kicking off with Linda.
5: We're sitting there in the full Hamer Hall, and it was silent and Archie walked on with his guitar and plugged in, started playing and it was really quiet because he really took his time. I think he was nervous, he seemed really calm but I think he was nervous after talking to him years later. Started playing, took the children away and I mean, I think Vicka and I both looked at each other and went, oh, my goodness, me, the to of his voice. You could really hear a pin drop. And everyone was on his side and he played the song and no one said anything. It was quiet, deathly silence, actually. And I think everyone was stunned, you know, of what we'd just heard, not just his voice, but the song, the power of the song. No one really had talked about that before, or not that I'd heard of. And Archie, I think, thought it bombed. So he just got his guitar and plugged it and took off. <laughs> and then as he was sort of walking just about off the side of the stage, everyone went crazy. The whole place erupted. And it was just this thunderous applause in Home Hall. And everyone was kind of like, everyone had goosebumps. And I can just, it was like yesterday. And he just knocked everybody's socks off. It was a very emotional moment. We knew someone important and arrived on the scene. We knew he was a very, very humble man and it was just made all the more powerful because it just it's delivered it so simply and from the heart and just, it, it, I don't think Melbourne's ever been the same again on so,
1: music scene, really. Linda's sister Vicar has similar memories of that fateful night.
5: It was very moving. It was, it was very powerful. It was very emotional, Yeah. You know? I think about Archie, you know just 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 how like what a um what a quiet soul he is you know he's very and he's always been like that and he's incredibly funny as well you know when you, you can really have a great laugh with him but yeah when he's on stage he's very still and that's what I like about Archie and I think that that that, that is more powerful than than jumping around you know like a like a blue-ass fly, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Paul's booking agent, Gerard, who's seen more gigs than you could poke a stick at, also remembers Archie opening for Paul that night being a momentous occasion.
0: I was there. It was an absolutely extraordinary show. It's something that you, you sort of read references to things like that and to reactions to certain artists when they do a show. And uh, I actually got to see it and experience it, and it was just mind-blowing. You still sort of get shivers when you sort of cast your mind back and think about it. Um, uh, What happened was Archie came on as a special guest and I'm not sure if he even got announced because generally, you know, that didn't really happen. You didn't have stage announcements or anything like that. So it was a sold out show at Hamer Hall, or the Melbourne Concert Hall as it was known then. And um, and Archie just walked out on stage and people were going, who's this guy? And he performed three songs and... The last song was uh, "Took the Children Away," and by then, him just playing with his guitar, the room had fallen silent, and people are going, "This is this is insane." So he does the song, and uh, and as legend has it, he walks off the stage, and slowly, you hear this incredible reaction: people standing, ovation, people in tears, and uh, and I think from reading bits and pieces. From what Archie was saying, he he had no idea about this. He thought, oh, I hope I did okay. Yeah. You know, classic, this classic reaction from Archie, and uh, uh, um, and and, that, and it all went from there. And then, of course, um, the record label Mushroom, Simon Bayard Eleanor McKay, uh, the publishing company with Ian James and Linda Besedes, they all uh, took Archie under their wing, and 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 what came out of that is probably one of the greatest records that's been released in this country, Charcoal Lane.
1: But there's a little bit of water to go under the bridge yet before Charcoal Lane becomes a reality. Paul remembers not seeing Archie again that night of the gig, but hitting him up about possibly recording together soon afterwards.
4: We went on stage straight, straight, straight as Archie came off. So, and by the time we'd finished our show, he was gone. So um, then we, um, you know, we... We tracked him down after that and um, uh,
1: asked if he was maybe interested in making a record. So there you have it. The stage is set. Archie has been discovered by Steve Connolly and Paul Kelly, blown away their crowd, and now they're asking him to record an album of his songs with them. Every musician's absolute dream. There's only one problem. Archie doesn't really want to do it. He enjoyed his work in health services at the hostel. He felt he was making a difference that way and leaving those people in the lurch to chase some far-fetched musical dream seemed wrong or selfish. When he told his wife, Ruby Hunter, that he was planning on knocking back Paul's offer, she famously rebuked him, saying, it's not all about you, Archie Roach. How many blackfellas you reckon get to record an album? And with that, he was in.
3: I was just happy doing what I was doing. I was, you know... Like I say, I was working at the, uh, door to shelter, a hostel in, in Fitzroy. A lot, of, a lot of the clients were my old drinking mates. And, uh, I was happy doing that, the money was pretty good. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, so I, you know, I just thought that maybe it's something in my life. That, you know, it's just, you know, I don't, don't really need it at the moment. I'm not interested in really, I mean, it's just not really me, so I thought and that's when that's when Ruby famously uh, put her hands on my hips on my hips and looked at me and said, "It's not all about you, Archie." Right? And uh, <laughs> and a true word never spoken. So. See, it's never never really about me. A lot of, in community, it's about it's about people. It's about community. It's about doing whatever we can to to uplift and. Uh, bring people, and if you're doing well and going good, try to bring people along with you, hopefully, and, and, uh, and so that they'll that, be okay too. And that's what she meant, you know. Like we looked up to, you know, you know footy stars, uh, Polly Farmer, you know, Ivan uh, Goolagong, Don Rose when one of the World better My Championship, uh, and people like that. Now Uncle Jimmy Little in this sense, and so yeah, that's that's what she was talking about. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe 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 somebody else will you know, will think, oh, i am do an album like Archie. Okay, Archie Rage did it. I could do it. Something
1: like that. Yeah. Archie, and all of us, tragically lost Ruby Hunter when she passed away in 2010. We have Archie's express permission to talk about her in this podcast. And although she herself would go on to become the first Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman to ever sign to a major label, kick-starting her own brilliant musical career in the process, it was her persuasiveness in getting Archie to back himself in and record Charcoal Lane that's arguably her most important ever contribution to Australian music, changing both of their lives forever in the process. We'll leave episode one with the Charcoal Lane song Beautiful Child Archie Remembers playing first, that fateful night opening for Paul Kelly in Melbourne.
2: Oh, my beautiful child My beautiful child The brightest of stars Couldn't match your sweet smile But you grew up too soon Far beyond your young years Now all that remains Is your memory and tears You were always to blame And they put you through hell Then they locked you away in a dark lonely cell but you weren't really bad just a little bit wild. now they'll help you know oh my beautiful child You fool, but you always came back With your head held high And so proud to be blessed But the last time they came How could I have known When they took you away that you'd never come home Yeah, they pushed you around Cause your skin wasn't white And although you were gentle You learned how to fight And you fought all your life. No, you didn't fail But you deserve better Than to die in some day
1: Thanks, as always, to our network partners, Yamaha Headphones, and thanks to you for checking out the first episode of Rewind's Look Back at Charcoal Lane. Please stick around for the rest of this super important Australian story.
0: Rewind with Steve Bell is a Euphony podcast produced by Craig Trewick and Andrew Moss, recorded by Zig Parker, theme music by Bar. For more Euphony podcasts, visit our website, Spotify, Apple, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.